Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If I asked you to name the most frequently repeated do's or do nots from the collection of books, the 66 books that make up the Old Testament and New Testament, and said, what is the greatest commitment, what is the thing that's repeated more than any other commandment in this text? I'm guessing some of you would say one of those. But the reality is those commands, they aren't repeated all that much. To be fair, they're still good to follow. I would encourage you to follow them, um, but they aren't all that important. However, fear not. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. This is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Over the next five weeks, we are going to look at some of the greatest fears that we face today and what the authors and characters we read about in this book have to show us and teach us on how to overcome those fears. You know, fear is very present in our culture and it comes in all sorts of different forms. A Google search of the most common fears Americans face today in 2019 reveals everything from the fear of flying to the fear of death to the fear of public speaking. Actually, more people are afraid of public speaking than they are dying, which means a lot of people would rather be dead than do what I'm doing (laughs) right now. Uh, The fear of spiders is another big one, and that's a fear that has really affected our household pretty pretty greatly. Uh, My wife is incredibly afraid of spiders. And I use the adverb incredibly on purpose because it's incredible how the community of spiders across the world has gone to this like intentional pursuit of tormenting my wife. Like they just know she's afraid and they want to mess with her. Like one time we were at one of my friend's house and we were leaving. And as we walked out, a spider dropped from the ceiling about 25 feet above and landed on her chest and crawled down her shirt. And I did what any supportive husband would do. Any of you who are married would would react the same way that I did, I'm sure. I laughed hysterically. (laughs) I mean, what am I supposed to do? Reach in and grab the spider? I didn't know what kind of spider it was. What if it bit me? (laughs) You got to think, you know? This is one of many unfortunate run-ins Amanda has had with spiders. So she's afraid. 
And I'm sure many of you can relate to that fear. But if it's not a fear of spiders, I'm sure each of us can identify something that we are afraid of on all of our campuses or if you're watching online, we know what we are fearful of. Throughout this series, we're going to dig into five fears that we all wrestle with. And each one of these fears is closely associated to our identity as human beings, and they can and will impact our relationship with God. Today, we are going to focus on the fear of failure, the fear of failure, and not like moral failure or sinful failure. I might touch on that a little bit later on because I think we all would agree that we should avoid those at all costs, but more like the fear of not succeeding or not achieving Coincidentally enough, this fear, out of all the fears that we're going to unpack and probably any other fear that exists, this fear is the one that I struggle with the most. I fear losing more than I fear winning. I stay awake at night afraid of what bad habits I might be passing down to my son, how I might be failing my son as a father. I fear failure in a lot of areas of my life. And I think I fear it because I have had some pretty miserable failures. I have failed classes. I have been fired from jobs. I've failed in relationships. I have not succeeded so bad that it has caused me to self-medicate with substances that do not honor God in order to try and compensate for the feeling I get when I fail. Now, I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time today talking about all the times I've failed. We, we actually don't have enough time for that. But to be clear, we're not going to spend very much time on our actual failures during this conversation at all. And here's why. To God, losing a job doesn't define who we are. To God, having a dwindling bank account does not define who we are. To God, getting broken up with or having a falling out in a friendship or relationship does not define who we are. However, we have and always will be considered children of God and that defines us. That defines who we are. And when we remember that we are children of God, loved and fully known, forgiven and accepted just as we are. All the potential failures that we might step into, they don't hold anything against us any longer. So I believe that we have to begin today with that understanding. And a lot of us would probably agree with what I just said, that that is true. But I'm not sure, I haven't been convinced that just understanding this completely helps us overcome the fear of failure. And I'm guessing that a lot of us wrestle with this specific fear. Maybe you felt that if you lose your job, you're a failure. Maybe you felt like your divorce or the difficulties you face in your marriage has already earned you the label failure. Maybe, maybe you have kids who aren't following after Jesus and it has caused you to consider yourself a failure as a parent. Maybe your long and unfulfilled quest to be in a committed and loving relationship with someone else has caused you to think of yourself as a failure. 
As my wife and I have tirelessly endured the adoption process and are still awaiting a child, I have often wondered if there is something that we have failed in, if we are failures, and that's why we have yet to adopt a kid. But as I've waited and as I've pondered this question, my wife and I have still had to go through hours upon hours of training to prepare ourselves to invite a child into our home. And we've learned a ton about responses to fear. Most of us are familiar with the fight or flight response to fearful situations, fight being the hormone-assisted strength to respond aggressively, and flight being the anxiety-driven response to get the heck out of whatever situation you're in. But we've also recently learned of another response. There's fight, there's flight, and there's also freeze. And freeze is the disconnection with the here and now, numbing yourself to the point of mental physical, and emotional immobilization so that you don't feel the weight of your current circumstance. As human beings, when we are faced with fear, we will naturally respond in one of these three ways, fight, flight, or freeze. And when it comes to the fear of failure, everything in me wanted wanted to stand before you today and attempt to give a, a message, to give a sermon that would give you courage and lean toward the fight response to overcome the fear of failure, to talk to you about perseverance and initiative, no matter what you're up against. Because in all of my preparation, as as I read and studied for this week, I was inspired by stories of people who did not let failure cause a crippling fear as they moved ahead. I mean, Babe Ruth struck out 1,330 times, but it did not stop him from hitting 714 home runs. Dr. Seuss had his first book rejected by 27 different publishers, but the 28th sold over 6 million copies. Kristen Anderson Lopez, the the woman who wrote the song Let It Go in Disney's Frozen, had 17 other songs turned down before she wrote the song that your children would not stop singing over and over and over again. Actually, that 18th version of the song was so good that they rewrote part of the movie to fit the song in Frozen. But regardless, she still wrote 18 versions of the song. If there's anyone who should have let it go, it should have been her. (laughs) And of course, there's the life-changing inspirational quote that is very original from Michael Gary Scott that most of us are aware of. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Wayne Gretzky, also Michael Scott. (laughs) But let's go back a bit further in human history. Just read the first few chapters of the book of Joshua in the Hebrew scriptures and you will see the value of being strong and courageous, fighting and pushing through when the fear of failure causes you to want to flee or freeze. This holds a ton of weight. However, while courage, perseverance, and initiative are biblically sound approaches to the fear of failure, God had something different in mind for us today. See, when struggling with this fear, I believe that God is imploring and pushing each of us to do something that will inform our response when we come up against any fear, but specifically the fear of failure. 
And I think taking a look at the life of Moses will help us unpack this a little bit. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter three or get there on your Bible apps. Exodus chapter three. As you turn there, I wanna unpack a little bit of Moses' life, kind of set the stage for where we're gonna go today. Here's the deal with Moses. He was born during a point in history when the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. It was at this time when Pharaoh gave an order that any Israelite baby boy who was born was to be thrown into the Nile to be killed. So Moses' mother, Jochebed, when he was born, hides him for three months, but when she couldn't keep his existence a secret any longer, she put him in a basket and sent him down the river, hoping that someone would save him which is exactly what happened. Moses was discovered in the water by, check this out, Pharaoh's daughter, who decided to keep him as her own son. And he grew up in the palace and had a great life until one day when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he intervened, consequently killing the Egyptian. Word got out what Moses did, so Moses decided, I gotta get out of here. So he took off, he, he fleed, flew, flew, I don't know what past tense of that is, Fled? Yeah, yes! I'm smart, I promise. <laughs> he ran away in fear. He then establishes a new life elsewhere, gets married, starts a family, and years go by. And this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter three. We read that Moses has a direct encounter with God. He speaks to the God of the Israelites, the God of the universe, and God says to Moses, hey Moses, you are gonna be the one that's gonna lead my people. You're gonna lead the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. And Moses didn't love this idea. Exodus chapter three, verse 11, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, check it out there. I will also have it on the screen here. Here's what Moses said to God. God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses' instant response to God's direction is fear. His focus immediately went to his inadequacy and inability and said, God, if I do this, I'm gonna fail. But look at how God responds, verse 12. The very next verse, God says, hey, Moses, I will be with you, which is such an interesting response. Like God doesn't take away Moses' fear. He doesn't give him the game plan for success. Like, well, we're gonna do this and then we're gonna do this. You, you don't have to be so anxious. It's all gonna work out fine. All he said was, I'll be with you. I will be with you. If you read through the next two chapters, if you read through uh, chapters three and chapter four, you'll see this theme continue. Moses is constantly going before God saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not a good speaker, I'm terrible, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fail. And God keeps saying, hey, I'll be with you. In Exodus 4.13, Moses goes as far as to say, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> see, in this moment, Moses is completely paralyzed by his fear. He is so focused on the areas he's confident and convinced that he will for sure fail in that he wants God to find somebody else altogether. So just send someone else. But God chose Moses. He already picked him. 
And so he consistently responds by saying four simple, four simple words, I am with you. I am with you. And it's with this assurance that Moses eventually follows God. He does what God asks, and over the next 28 chapters of Exodus, Moses is used by God to perform miracle after miracle. He frees the Israelites from their slavery and leads them toward the land God had promised. And along the way, he gives Moses the entire law and the Ten Commandments that we all know of and are aware of today. If you watch the 1998 film, the Prince of Egypt, you'll get a full animated picture for everything I just explained, and you'll get to hear Val Kilmer act as the, as the voice of God and Moses. It's a win-win. You should check it out. Or just read Exodus. It's a better option. It's in this part of Moses' story. When we get to this point of Moses' story along his journey, this is when he is at the height of his success. Despite all of his fears, despite all of his shortcomings, things are going unbelievably well for Moses. But then we get to Exodus chapter 32. And in Exodus chapter 32, the Hebrew people are still on their, on their way to the land God had promised and have stopped while Moses goes up a mountain to have a conversation, a direct conversation with God. Which, by the way, this is something Moses often does. He climbs up mountains to talk with God. It's actually something a lot of people in the scriptures do. They go and have these incredible, literal, mountaintop experiences with God. And Moses is no different. But this time, Moses, when Moses comes back down the mountain, he walks down and he sees his people and they are dancing to an idol they have created while, the, while Moses was up talking to God. And the text says that they are running wild. They're running wild. And Moses sees this. He sees his people turning from God and he's furious. He can't believe this. I can't leave you alone to go talk to God without you making another God. Come on. So he, he's irate, but he composes himself and says, you know what, I gotta go, I gotta go ask for forgiveness. I gotta plead for forgiveness for my people. And this is, let's flip over to chapter 33 and we'll see God's response to Moses' plea for forgiveness. Chapter 33, verse one, here is what God says to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go to the land I promised on oath. God's saying, I'm gonna keep my promise. The land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the inhabitants. I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. It's gonna be awesome. Great food. It's super awesome. But, and here's the kicker. This is the kicker for Moses. God says, I will not go with you. I'm not going with you because you are a stiff-necked people. And then there's this really encouraging part, and I might destroy you on the way. <laughs> God says, okay, Moses, I'll forgive them. I'll forgive the people. You can actually, you can still lead them to the promised land even. It will be everything you hoped and dreamed it would be, but I'm not gonna go with you. This didn't sit well with Moses. Skip ahead to verse 15 and see how Moses responds to this. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will separate me and your people? What else will distinguish me and your people from the other people on the face of the earth? Moses musters up a little bit of courage here. 
He comes back at God and says, hey, God, if you're not going, I'm not either. But he doesn't stop there. Moses has the audacity to take this request one step further. Look at what he says next. Skip to verse 18. Here's what Moses says. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Here's what Moses is saying. God, I want more of you. I know you're saying you're not going, but that's not gonna work for me. Not only do I want to be with you, I want more of you. Let me know you in all of your majesty and all of your splendor. Let me be with you like no human being has ever been with you. See, Moses used the fact that he knew God as an excuse to know him better. Show me your glory. This is where I believe that Moses gives us a fourth response when it comes to the fear of failure, something that he struggled with throughout his life. We can fight, we can flee, we can freeze, or we can follow. Let me explain this. For Moses, he did not measure his success, which success is the opposite of failure. He did not measure his success by leading the Israelites well. He did not measure his success on whether or not he got them into the promised land. Remember, God said, you can still go. That's fine. You can still go to the promised land. But Moses is like, "Mm mm-mm, not good enough. Moses measured his success by how closely he followed God, by simply being with God. This, for Moses, was true achievement. In light of all this, as as I've processed this over the years, It's made me rethink how I define success. And I've realized that I don't want to be the best husband. I want to be at the center of God's will and allow him to lead me through my marriage. I don't want to be the best father. I want to parent in partnership with Jesus. I don't want to be the best pastor. I want to pastor and shepherd and communicate and teach led by Jesus Christ. Because for me, when, when I'm at my best, when I'm, when I'm really doing well at this, this is success. You see, success is not being the best. Success is following God to the best of your ability. So what about you? How do you define success? When it comes to your career, to your friendships, when it comes to your marriage, your parenting, when it comes to your life, how do you define success? See, the fear of failure arises when we have a misguided definition of what success is. Because when we pursue that success and aren't confident we'll actually achieve it or sustain it, fear grabs hold of us. So what are you searching for? Is it happiness? Is it wealth? Is it comfort? Is it status? Stability? These are not bad things in life, but here's the deal. When these things become what we are following after, we will eventually fail because it is impossible. It is impossible to maintain a satisfactory state of happiness, stability, status, or comfort outside of God. So of course, of course we'll begin to feel anxiety and experience fear when it comes to potential failure. I think a better question for us in light of all this would be, how does God define success? As we read through scriptures, we begin to understand that we were designed, 
Human beings were designed to search for God. The people in this book are told to fear not more than any other command in all of scripture. And the same people that are told to fear not are infatuated with following after God, pursuing God, seeking God's presence. They're like God-obsessed people. And I think it's because when they aren't searching for God, but are instead striving for their own success, this is the precise moment when fear rears its ugly head. I mean, what phrase is constantly connected with the phrase fear not? I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. Not fear not, here's the game plan. Not fear not, here's how you're gonna succeed. It's fear not, don't worry about anything else because I'm here. See, we are not defined by our accomplishments or our failures, but rather as followers of Jesus, we are defined by the unique design of who he made us to be. And when we spend time with God, here's what we realize we understand that we thrive by simply being with God. You know, seven or so years ago, I was preparing to teach a message to our high school students. I was the high school pastor at the time, and it was a message on this very topic, the fear of failure. And Pastor Steve walked in, and he said, hey, Steve, what are you you doing right now? And, And I said, I'm writing my message for for the high school students. And he said, tell me what you're gonna, you're gonna teach them. And I was like, okay. And I started just explaining, like, I'm so excited to talk through like how they should be strong and courageous and, and how, they, how they should just do it anyway, no matter what they come up against and how they, how they should just fight. And, and I was watching Steve as I was telling him what I was gonna teach and he was like getting angry at me, which was super uncomfortable for, for me. My boss is getting angry at me as I'm telling him what I'm doing. And, and, he's, and he, he, so I kind of slowed down and he said, Steve, Stop shooting on students. And I said, uh, what? I was like, I think you said a word you didn't mean to say there. And he said, no, no, no. Hey, quit telling students what they should do. Help them to seek the supernatural. It's a quote that I have hanging on my office wall now. The whole thing makes people pause when they read it. They're like, what does that mean? But what I've realized, and this is, the reason I have it hanging on my, on my wall isn't because I just need to remember that when I get up to communicate. Like, hey, let's, let's help people seek the supernatural, all-powerful, loving, merciful, gracious God. It's something for me. Quit trying to figure out what else you need to do besides pursue God. Because you're going to end up putting that other pursuit ahead of God as you try to please God. Here's what God wants. Remember, I'm with you. Go with that. You see, I've come to learn that success in the kingdom of God looks different than success in the kingdom of me. And as a competitive person, I want to achieve. I want to move forward. I want to conquer and overcome whatever is ahead of me. So this is a challenge. Follow God. Seek the supernatural. Seek his glory. And this is something I'd encourage you to do this week. I think this is where we can put some legs to this a little bit. Spend some time attempting to follow God with every fiber of your being. Seriously, here's here's what I wanna ask you to do. This week, look for your mountaintop experience where you can experience the glory of God, just like what Moses asked for. 
that it would infect us and impact us, that his glory would shine through us. This is so fascinating. The more we read about Moses, we see that he's constantly climbing up these mountains to have experiences with God. And when we read Exodus 34, we see that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the text says that everyone looked at him and his face shone. His face was shining. His face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. The Hebrew word here is the word keran. And it literally means to send out rays. So people saw him and they're like, what's going on with you? Your face is shining. It's freaking us out a little bit. He was literally shining because he had an experience with God. And this, I believe, is still true of followers of Jesus who walk in the presence of God on a daily basis. They are radiant beings who shine with the glory of our creator. But check this out. I don't think you have to climb a mountain to have a mountaintop experience with God. In a chapter entitled, The Soul Needs to Be With God, John Ortberg writes that the best place to start doing life with God is in the small moments. He explained that he begins each day by challenging himself with this question. How many moments of my life today can I fill with conscious awareness of and surrender to God's presence? You know, anytime I go snowboarding in South Lake Tahoe and ride the gondola up and get to overlook the entire the entire lake. Last night I, I was sharing the story and some guy came up to me and sh showed me a picture of this past weekend when he was there. And I was like, you're the worst. But, but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Here's the deal. When I'm, on the, when I'm on that gondola, it's so easy for me to be aware of the presence of God. It's like really easy when I'm on top of that mountain and I can see his beauty all around me to be with God. Same thing happened last week when we were here for our uh, sunrise Easter service. So cool how many people were here. And as the sun rose, I had this incredible moment with God where I was just so grateful for his glory. He just lit up our front patio with people who were hearing and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was this beautiful moment. But every day is not Easter. And I'm not snowboarding in South Lake Tahoe every single, every single day for as much as I would like to be. But because I can't, I am attempting, and I encourage you to join me in this, to be consciously aware of God and surrender to his presence, especially in the small moments. Even when my son is throwing a temper tantrum, even when my wife and I are in an argument, even when I get cut off on the freeway, even when the person behind the counter messes up my sandwich order, I'm trying to be aware of God's presence in that moment. And it's so weird how when I do this, how often God shows me how misaligned my focus can be, even in these small moments, and how much I pursue and follow after my own wants and my own desires. I develop a pretty profound sense of self-focus, and I completely miss God. And the crazy thing is that this even happens when it comes to my sin, that when I'm concerned about what potential sin I might be struggling with or dealing with or walking through, that I end up, instead of focusing on God, focusing on my sin and figuring out how I can overcome my sin. And I miss God in the process. In trying to honor and please God, I completely miss him. See, when we're struggling, even with the failure of sin or the fear of where we might, might fail when it comes to our sin, we can't focus 
on that fear. We can't focus on that potential failure. We have to direct our focus to God and figure out how he can redeem and and hold us accountable and protect and move us forward. Because when we are postured to follow after God, when we're seeking to pursue him in even in seemingly insignificant moments, I think we can have mountaintop experiences with God in our living rooms, in our vehicles, or in a local restaurant. Profound moments where we are consciously aware of our creator's presence. So I implore you, start by doing life today with God, even in the small moments. In the same chapter, Orberg also writes about a man named Nicholas Herman, a poor, uneducated dishwasher who was converted to the Christian faith, check this out, by looking at a tree. Never heard of a conversion experience like that before, but it worked for him, so it's awesome. He was looking at this barren tree, it was the middle of winter, and he, he saw that the tree didn't have any leaves, and he had this thought that occurred to him that when spring came around, that tree was going to grow some leaves, And he thought, if God would do that for a tree, he would do the same for for a human being. And so in in this moment, he's captivated by God's care and God's power, and right then and there decided to to devote his entire life to Jesus Christ. He ended up becoming a part of a monastery and spent the rest of his life as a dishwasher and cook while devoting every part of his being to pursuing and being with God. After his death, his friends gathered some of the letters that he had written while he was in the monastery, and they put it into a book. And it's called The Practice of the Presence of God, written in the 17th century. Today, Nicholas Herman is known as Brother Lawrence. You may have heard of him. And the book that they put together has been the inspiration to countless Christians in their quest to follow God. The book is actually considered to be the most widely read book in the history of humanity other than the Bible. All of this from an uneducated dishwasher who wanted to pursue God and wrote, I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without the practice of the presence of God. For my part, I keep myself retired with him in the depth of center of my soul as much as I can. And while I am so with him, I fear nothing. When we are with God, it doesn't matter if we are the CEO of the most lucrative company in the Silicon Valley or a lowly dishwasher in a monastery. When we are with God, failure is not not feared. Because success is found in our pursuit of him. To follow. What are you searching for? Whether it's in your parenting, marriage, singleness, job, whose success, whose glory are you striving for? Whose glory are you following after? Is it yours? Is it the glory of your friend's perception of you? Or are you following after God to the point that even when he leads you into what you perceive as failure, you're not afraid because we understand that ultimately God is working everything together for the good of those who love him and that he might be glorified through us. This is our goal. This is success. See, I've begun to understand that searching for God like we see all throughout the book from any biblical hero you read about, 
that it doesn't mean that fear goes away. Following God does not create the absence of fear, but rather it assumes fear and trusts God with the outcome. So when it comes to the fear of failure, two things that are inevitable in life, fear and failure, we have a choice. We can either head into it without God and be stressed, pressured, impatient, anxious people who are miserable to be around, or we can recognize that we don't run the universe, but instead would approach each situation, even the small ones, with the God who does run the universe and always has and has, was actually doing a good job of it before you or I were even born. You know, in light of this truth, my goal and what I hope is our goal, the thing I would love to see us succeed and not fail in is to make our daily prayer the same request that Moses had on the mountain that day. God, show me your glory. To be consciously aware of the presence of God even in the small moments. To turn our attention not to the fear that is unavoidable or the failure that is inescapable. But to search for and follow after God so that other people, check this out, so that other people may see God's presence in us, that we would literally be sending out rays of God's glory. This is success. That others may step into God's presence, that they would know his love and grace and forgiveness that a lot of us know all too well. His presence that is available to each of us. And I'll close with this. Last week, we talked about how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything for everyone everywhere throughout the history of humanity. That when that veil was ripped in two, it demonstrated that we now have access to God, something that no fear or failure or opposition could ever undo. Because when Jesus died on the cross, his story wasn't over because no tomb could contain his glory. He's alive and we each have the opportunity to be with God and as a result, have his glory radiate through us to those around us. But will we choose to follow? Will we choose to be consciously aware of and surrender to God, even in the small moments? If we do, I believe that the fear that paralyzes us, the potential failure that looms over us will not consume us. When we're faced with the fear of failure, my prayer is that we wouldn't just fight and keep pushing on until we find our own success or take flight and run away from the situation or freeze to the point of immobilization, but instead to choose to follow after God and seek his glory. And if we do, we could fail at everything else and yet still succeed at what is most important. I'm hoping that for all of us, especially those of us who struggle with this fear, I'm one of them, that we would strive to know Jesus, that we would seek the Holy Spirit, that we would follow after God, that this and this alone would be the definition of success for each of us. I'd like to leave you with a prayer written by author A.W. Tozer in 1948 in his book called The Pursuit of God from a chapter called Following Hard After God. It's a great read. And we're gonna, I wanna pray this prayer over us before we spend some time worshiping God, the God who is so worthy of our quest to follow him. And as I pray this prayer over us as a church, as a community, maybe you just wanna sit with your hands open as a posture of the surrender 
that we are acknowledging that we are aware of God's presence right now in this room or in the family venue or in parchments or watching online. That God, we surrender to you at every moment, every second of every day. We would be aware of your presence. Tozer writes, Oh God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory. I pray that so I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Give me grace to follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen.